Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and as always, keep in mind that the adult content here requires listener discretion. So glad to have Mark Lee Gardner back again. A scholar of the old American West, Mark has authored some wonderful books, including To Hell on a Fast Horse, a book about Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, which we discussed a few months back. He's also written a book called Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, his cowboy regiment, and the immortal charge up San Juan Hill. As exciting as that sounds for a topic today, it won't be. Instead, he's here to discuss my favorite of his books, Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and The Wild West's Greatest Escape. So glad to have you back with me again. Oh, well, I'm happy to talk to you, Eric. This will be fun. So this is a story about a bunch of pretty famous Missouri outlaws who decide to and probably against their better judgment, head north out of their element and rob a Minnesota bank. I'm eager to talk about the Northfield Bank raid in detail with you, but before we get there, we should set the stage and talk about the men who decided to do it and the place where they came from. So let's start by talking about the state of Missouri, its political climate, pre-Civil War, during the Civil War and post-Civil War, and how it affects the players in this story. What was going on in Missouri that made it such a hotbed of unrest? Well, you know, it's uh, part of its politics, <laughs> so there's always the high emotions when it comes to that. But, you know, it was politics combined with violence. You know, for, for several years there had been uh, heated uh, controversy over, you know, slave state in Kansas or free state. Uh, Missourians were crossing the border uh, before the Civil War to vote in Kansas elections, you know, it, again, to determine, well, you know, whether it would be free or not, the majority rules, so the majority of the people voted for slavery, it would be a slave state. Um, 
So there was high feelings, high emotions about that issue, and it resulted in violence uh, on both sides. And then it just got worse when the Civil War breaks out. And, you know, Frank James once said, you know, uh, you know, you could be for the South and your neighbors for Lincoln. Um, so Missouri is one of those really bitter battleground states where you have populations that came from the South, Kentucky, Virginia, uh, and you have others that are strong supporters of the Union. You know, I think one of the interesting things is that Cole Younger's father, who was murdered by federal troops, was actually a Unionist. He had slaves. Um, but he believed um, the war would tear the country apart, and he was right. So here was a man that didn't want war but was caught up on it, killed, and it leads to, of course, his sons. You know, if, if your father's killed by northerners, who are you going to fight with? You're not going to fight with the guys that killed you know, your, your, your father. Um, and the James family, they were from Kentucky, definitely southerners, very strong uh, southern uh, partisans, uh, and they got caught up in this, you know, swirling violence. Uh, and bloodshed, uh, and brother against brother. You know, it's a cliche, but it was really true. And it was neighbor against neighbor in Clay County, Missouri, where these guys were from. So let's get to the gang. I want to start with the younger brothers because this is, in my opinion anyway, more of, more of a story about the younger brothers than it is about Frank and Jesse James. What, what would you say about that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the Youngers certainly are a very interesting family, and there's three brothers together, and Jesse and Frank, you know, are two brothers. I mean, I look at it as a story of brothers, really. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess that's interesting that that's, that's what you took from it, um, and I can see that. Uh, but, you, but anyways, to get to the Younger brothers, I mean, they came from a very prominent family, uh, and their father was a merchant and owned a lot of land. He was a slave owner as well. Uh, and uh during the war that family is pretty much destroyed i mean their their uh their siblings their mother is harassed because the federals believe they're harboring the younger brothers at least cole who is definitely fighting you know with the bushwhackers uh and then eventually uh, uh brother jim who's the uh, the next uh, in order there before bob bob's too young really to take part in anything in the war but um yeah the younger brothers uh, as bob would say later you know, had there not been a war, we we would have turned out completely differently. I mean, we would have been probably apprenticing in, in our dad's store. Um, but the war changed everything for us, and I think it, it did that to the James brothers as well. So if you don't mind, could you talk about each of the younger brothers individually, what they look like, their temperaments, etc.? Yeah, Cole, is he's definitely the oldest. He's um, he's a little heavy set. Uh, by the time of the Northfield raid, he's you know, they describe him as balding. You know, he's starting to lose his hair. And, uh, you know, Jim, who's between Bob, you know, Bob's young, I think Bob's 21 or somewhere in there. Uh, Jim, at the time of the raids, is in California. And apparently Jim has kind of decided that he's done with the outlaw life and uh, he's, you know, taking up uh, legal pursuits, farming, ranching, uh, what have you. But one of the interesting things I find about Jim is that he apparently suffered from depression. Um, and it was one of these, I guess it's manic, a manic depressive. He had these dramatic mood swings, uh, and Cole described it, and I thought it was so a great description. He says, Jim's either in the, in the attic or the cellar, you know, as far as his feelings. You know, one minute he can be all excited and happy, and the next he's just down in the dumps. And I think that's kind of classic, you know, depression is what it sounds. I'm not a psychologist, but that's what it sounds like to me. And then Bob is, uh, the the handsome one of the family 
you know, he's very, very young, but his looks are just stunning. He's got a neat, small, trim mustache. Um, you know, he's too young to, to really take part uh, in the Civil War. Um, and he's also kind of the baby of the family that the other brothers feel like they kind of have to look out for. And one of the stories that's come down to us is that uh, when Cole learned, Cole really didn't want to go to suppose, – now, I'll tell you this. Cole said a lot of things after he was caught. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's real easy to craft a different narrative once you're captured and to make yourself look better uh, and to have better and more noble motives. But Cole claimed that he wasn't really up for going to Minnesota, doing this robbery in Northfield. But when Bob, who was a who was a devoted follower of Jesse, when Bob, you know, said, I'm going with Jesse, then Cole felt, I've got to go along. And apparently Cole sent a message to Jim that, yeah, we need to, you know, we need to look after Bob and, and uh, go along and make sure he's taken care of or nothing, nothing bad happens. I guess what I was trying to say when I said that this was mostly a younger brother's story is that the Northfield bank raid ends up, in, in a sense, defining the younger brothers at the end. But the James brothers continue on in their adventures for a few years more. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, the younger brothers spend years in prison. Uh, but they're, they're also probably the prison's biggest story. Uh, I mean, there's all, you know, there's always articles. If you go through the historic newspapers, you know, someone visited the Stillwater and saw the Younger Brothers, and, you know, we can go into this a little bit later, but, you know, they had all kinds of women <laughs> that visited and fell in love with, you know, the Younger Brothers, who, you know, who they knew couldn't get out for years, but some of these women fought for their parole, um, which eventually came. And then, you know, Bob dies in prison. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, their story is certainly their lives are ruined by the Northfield raid and, and they spend most of the rest of their life, you know, they, they go into prison as young men in, in 1876 and they don't come out until like 1902, you know, the two that survive. So yeah, most of their adult lives are spent behind bars. You've already mentioned a bit about the James brothers background. They're from Kentucky, you said, but can you talk more about their history? Yeah, you know, um, again, they're from, they're not, it's not necessarily a well-to-do family, but it's a very respected family. Their father is a minister, uh, Robert James, uh, and he's very well respected within the communities there in, in Clay County. He's one of the founders of William and Jewel College in, in Liberty, which exists to this day. He meets an untimely demise. He goes to, like many others, he goes to California uh, during the gold rush. And, you know, there's different stories about why he left his family and went to California. Some say he went to preach the gospel uh, to the men in the gold fields because there was a need of churches and religious men. Um, you know, he certainly could have gone because he had visions of, of you know, riches for his family as well. One of the, the more um, ungenerous stories is that he went to California to get away from his wife, Sorelda, who was, you know, a, a very strong-willed, cantankerous, and I've always been very sympathetic to the James Boy's mother because I feel like had she been born in the 20th century, that she would have been much more accepted and not considered, you know, so different or unusual. But being a strong-willed woman uh, with very strong views and opinions and outspoken, she was very outspoken, to be that way in Civil War era Missouri was very unusual. Uh, and I think she was she was 
judged unfairly because of that, but that was the time. But like I said, I've always been sympathetic to her, and she was a big influence on her sons. Um, the accounts we have is that Jesse took after his mother uh, in his opinions and, and mannerisms, and Frank was more like uh, the father, uh, Robert James. So how did the, the James and the Youngers meet? Well, they probably, you know, we know that Frank and Cole both fought under Quantrell. So we know that they met uh, as bushwhackers uh, under William Clark Quantrell's you know, loose band of guerrilla fighters, partisan fighters in the Civil War. Cole, we know, certainly uh, went to Lawrence and participated in the Lawrence Massacre, uh, and probably Frank as well. Frank would never really talk much about, I mean, you know, Frank James, there's lots of interviews with him, but he was very tight-lipped about his participation uh, in those things, whether it was Lawrence, which is highly controversial and still is today, or Centralia or any other massacres that whether Quantrill or Bloody Bill Anderson was part of. We know that Frank and Jesse were part of the Centralia uh, battle and massacre um, under Bloody Bill Anderson. But anyway, to get back to your question, these guys meet in the Civil War. Um, Jesse's a guerrilla fighter by age 16, under Quantrell, then later Bloody Bill Anderson. Apparently, Frank and Cole, their friendship starts as bushwhackers. And Cole was never, uh, you know, he, he wasn't as tight with Jesse, you know, because Jesse was younger. You know, uh, Jesse's born in 47, and Frank's born in 43, and just closer in age. I mean, there's only a year difference between Cole and Frank. So it's natural, you know, you know that they would be friends. And uh, I think it, you can relate to that as anybody that has siblings. I mean, you know, sometimes you'll have a buddy uh his brother you're not really as much buddies with as you are the other brother. <laughs> so I think that's the way it was with Cole. He was tight with Frank. Wasn't quite as close to, to Jesse. So please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But after reading your book, my impression is that the James brothers were a little more hot-tempered than the younger brothers in their interactions. Would you say that's true? Well, I don't know, not necessarily. I mean, I think that's uh, Jesse is considered more ruled by his emotions, hot-headed, uh, and very strong uh, opinions, outspoken. Frank, you know, was quieter and uh, very apparently very calculating. You know, one one uh, uh, one relative of the James brothers said, you know, Frank's the one that did the planning, and Jesse's the one that did the execution. But uh, but you know, here's a, some interesting comparisons. You know, Frank is very well read. Um, is known to, to quote Shakespeare uh, quite often, in fact, to the point of obnoxiousness. <laughs> but one of the gang members said that, you know, we ought to be looking out for the Pinkertons that are citing, you know, spout, spouting off Shakespeare all the time. But Jesse uh, was a vociferous uh, reader of the newspapers, and again, he had strong political viewpoints, and uh, he's the one that consistently wrote letters uh, to the newspapers that were published, you know, as, when they were outlaws and on the run. And, uh, you know, one relative said, you know, Frank would consider that a risk. He would never, you know, write a letter or, or you know, deliver it to a, a newspaper or, you know, he, he wanted to keep under the radar. Well, you know, and Jesse just couldn't keep silent and uh, wanted to talk about how they were being persecuted and didn't receive justice at the end of the war and, and everybody was against them and it wasn't them. They always had some kind of alibi. But anyway, yes, Jesse uh, was a little more, had a uh, bigger temper a little more impulsive. But, you know, the other thing is, that's, that you have to say, too, is that apparently the gang members liked Jesse better than Frank for those reasons. I mean, he was apparently Jesse was just uh, 
gregarious, had a better personality, and he was fun, told good stories, usually about himself. Um, whereas Frank was, you know, I guess kind of a curmudgeon, uh, maybe one of the words to kind of quiet and uh, just wasn't as much into socializing with the boys as Jesse. So, you know, they kind of preferred Jesse over Frank is my understanding. Can you talk about the Pinkerton raid briefly on the James family farm in 1875? Yeah, sure. This was in January, uh, the middle of the night, about midnight. Uh, you know, the whole reason for this is that, uh, you know, the Pinkertons, and especially, you know, Alan Pinkerton, uh, who leads the agency, uh, he had been hired by the railroads uh, to put a stop to these outrageous robberies, costing the railroads a lot of money. And it's not just money, but it's also prestige, um, and it, it, it's very bad for the state of Missouri as well. You know, becomes known as the robber state. Uh, so the railroads, you know, the, their biggest enemy is the James Younger gang, and especially the James boys, I guess. that's Those are the ones that are really uh, targeted. So they hire the Pinkertons. Uh, Pinkerton loses men to these outlaws. There's a, a Pinkerton agent that arrived uh, in Liberty, and, you know, uh, he thinks he can kind of infiltrate and, and go to the James farm and get hired on as a laborer. And everybody warns him not to. They say, you know, they're, they're way too smart for that. They're going to figure you out right away. And he won't listen to them. He's like the dumbest Pinkerton agent ever. And he goes out to the James farm, and the next time people see him, he's dead. <laughs> and after getting all these warnings, you know, they, they, the, the James boys had a lot of sympathizers in, in Clay County. Uh, and also, uh, Allen loses another Pinkerton agent uh, to the Younger Brothers. There's an encounter in South Missouri uh, near Monagaw Springs, and a Pinkerton agent is killed. Uh, so he has a, a real vendetta against the James boys. And there's this correspondence. Pinkerton has some allies uh, in Liberty. One is a lawyer um, that, that, that practices there. And so they have these secret communications. And uh, and also there's a Pinkerton man who is uh, employed by the farmer who lives right across the creek so he can keep an eye out on the James farm. And the idea is, is for this raid, when we know the James boys are home, we'll have men that are ready to go. There'll be a special railroad car. that will take them there, and we'll nab them uh, or kill them. Pinkerton was so incensed against the James brothers for his losses that his letters, and these letters are extant in the Pinkerton files, he instructs uh, uh, lawyer Hardwick to burn the house to the ground. He wants the house gone. And they have an incendiary device. They send along a special device that's supposedly, and there's actually, if you go to the James farm today, there's the, they saved a piece of this thing. Uh, it's on display in the museum. But the idea was it was to, they were to throw it in, and it was to, to set a fire inside the house. So anyway, uh, Alan Pinkerton gets word the James boys are home. This, it's the, you know, the, the green, they've got the green light. The railroad sends this party of men, maybe 8 to 12 Pinkertons, um, and they get off about a mile or so from the James farm and in the cover of darkness sneak up to the house. Uh, they try to set the outside of the house on fire. They bust a window, throw in the incendiary device. Well, you know, by now the family's all roused, and there's, there's, of course, they also have slaves that are living there in the home as well. And they're not slaves by then, I'm sorry, but they have, they're now, you know, African-American servants that they had been slaves formerly. And uh, their, uh, their, uh, their stepfather, um, you know, uh, the Reverend Samuel, uh, Reuben Samuel, he uh, gets a, a broom or something and tries to scrape this incendiary device. He's, he so, she kind of scoots it into the fireplace. Well, it doesn't work like it's supposed to, and it explodes. And the whole family's in there. So their half-brother, Archie Sammy, is only eight years old. Uh, a fragment goes into his stomach. It's a mortal wound. Uh, Zerelda, their mother, 
Uh, her arm is mangled, and so it has to be amputated at the elbow or just below the elbow. Uh, and guess what? The James boys aren't there. Uh, and uh, it's a complete failure. The Pinkertons retreat. Apparently they're terrified, uh, and they run away after hearing the shrieks and, and the moans and what they've done. And uh, they get on the train and get head back to Chicago. And it's a huge story because... Now, the James boys, it seems like their claims of being persecuted are really true. You know, the Pinkertons, who are not associated with any kind of law enforcement agency on this raid, they did not have permission from the local sheriff, anybody else. They did this all on their own. They go and attack an innocent family. You know, none of the people in that house had committed robberies or, or you know, broken any laws. And they kill a, a young boy. And as I say in the book, uh, it's an interesting contrast because, you know, as bad as the James boys were, they didn't kill children, but the Pinkertons did. You know, they murdered a child in this raid. And there's there's amazing sympathy for the James brothers after this. And it seems like this is proof, you know, oh, yeah. And there's actually an effort for amnesty uh, within the Missouri legislature to, to pardon uh, the Jameses and the Youngers right after this, this raid like, occurs. So three Youngers, two James, and another three men round out the gang. Their names are Bill Chadwell, Charlie Pitts, and Clell Miller. Can you talk a little bit about the three men in the gang that we haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, you know, Charlie Pitts was a friend of the Youngers, and we don't know a lot about him, but um, uh, apparently, uh, uh, you know, he had also been a fighter and a guerrilla fighter in the Civil War. Bill Chadwell is one of the youngest members, and, you know, how he got connected with uh, the James Younger gang is really kind of a mystery. He was born in Illinois. His family immigrates to the kind of Kansas, southern uh, Missouri, Kansas border where they're doing some lead mining, and so apparently he somehow comes in connection with those guys. And then Clell Miller, he was a great friend of Jesse's. Clell Miller also, as a teenager, joins up with the guerrilla fighters, and he's, he's with Bloody Bill Anderson, and he's captured when Bloody Bill Anderson is shot and killed uh, in this raid uh, that occurs near Richmond, Missouri, a place known as Albany, it's not the Albany of today, which is in North Missouri, but a little town that's now gone. Uh, and there's a little battle there, and, and Bloody Bill is killed, and Clell Miller is captured. And so those those guys all have a connection in some way uh, to either the Youngers uh, or the Jameses. And they all got along together pretty well, right? Yeah, they yeah they do. Um, you know, I think one of the keys to the success of the, is the James Younger game is the trust. They have in one another, and it's a trust that had been formed in battle. I mean, when you serve in a very violent war and you see awful things together, there's this bond. And I think a lot of military veterans talk about that. I mean, whether it's, you know, watch the World War II miniseries Band of Brothers. I mean, these guys, what they went through together cements them, and they remain close for the rest of their lives because they had this intense connection and I think that was the key to the James Youngers. These guys had all fought. They'd all lost uh, the war, but they'd all been part of these bushwhackers, these guerrillas, that literally had to survive uh, in the woods and constantly, you know, whether it's a surprise attack against the Federals and then hiding out uh, from the Federals, but against amazing odds, they're able to kind of hold it together and live. So, And they did it by working with each other, and they depended upon each other. So... When you go through something like that, they know that it doesn't matter how many people are shooting at them in the street at a bank robbery, 
they're not going to abandon the guys, their friends, their their compatriots that are in that bank. That's the kind of uh, bond that they have. You can they know they can count on each other, and that's Jesse's undoing later. Is he ends up getting some guys that he doesn't fight with in the Civil War who are kind of bottom of the barrel, and uh, you can't count on. In fact, they turn on him <laughs> and they sell him out and they assassinate him. But uh, the earlier formation of the gang had this unique shared experience and uh, they could depend on one another to, to carry out whatever mission they set for themselves. And up to the point where they decided to foray into Minnesota, they had robbed quite a number of banks and trains already, hadn't they? Yeah, there's a number. Yeah, they, they'd been in several robberies from small little holdups to, to big halls. And, of course, the, the, one of the huge halls, uh, and this has a, plays a factor in the, in the raid in Minnesota, on July 7, 1876, they rob a train near Otterville, Missouri. It's called the Rocky Cut Robbery. It's about a mile from Otterville. There's this cut through the limestone bluff uh, overlooking the Lamine River. And uh, they get away with, in cash, over $10,000. And, you know, it's that that's one of their biggest train jobs. And I thought what was so interesting, and I have a whole chapter about Rocky Cut that begins the book, but uh, some of the Missouri newspapers seem to kind of give their okay, you know, to what it, they, you know, they, they, they mention, uh, you know, they give the caveat or the aside that nobody was hurt, you know, it was such a professional robbery and, and nobody was hurt. And it says the only people that were hurt was the railroad. <laughs> and that's okay, apparently, you know, it's okay to take the railroad's money and as long as you don't hurt anybody. And it was almost like they were kind of thrilling or reveling in the success of the James Younger gang and how they had pulled off this incredible robbery. But it ends up, it ends up being the undoing of the gang because one of the gang members, and he, he's the most, he's the newest gang member, and uh, his name is Hobbs Carey. Do you remember him from the book? I do, yeah. Yeah, Hobbs Carey. So he's stupid, unlike the other gang members. You know, he's got all of a sudden he's got over a thousand dollars, and he just starts throwing it around. I mean, he's like gambling. He's he he goes through like twelve hundred dollars. He's he's down to like twenty bucks, and he's captured. You know, and and in fact. Um, some of the uh, uh, local law enforcement, and out of, actually law enforcement even out of St. Louis, had gotten wind of him, and they had letters that he had written, you know, trying to get this other person to join the gang. They were planning a robbery and this kind of stuff. Well, anyway, they they capture him after he spent all this money, and Hobbs Carey, not being one of the brothers, not being you know uh, having that that bond, he sings like a canary, fesses up everything, and so he's telling everything he knows. He confirms that, yes, indeed, it is Jesse and Frank James and Cole and Bob and others that were involved in this robbery. So now they know about where the gang likes to go, you know, favorite hideouts, and, and, and the, the manhunt is intense for the James brothers and the, the younger brothers. And so that is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, that they decide we have to go somewhere for a while till things cool off, you know, get them off our trails. They'll know that we're no longer in the state what have you, or, or elsewhere, and uh, they decide on Minnesota for several reasons, and one of the reasons they decide on Minnesota, Jesse really wants to go there because of Hardwick. Uh, the lawyer actually was, after the after the uh, Pinkerton raid, he fears for his life because his name gets into the papers. It was a horrible mistake by Pinkerton to let that name get out. We don't know how it got out, but once uh, Samuel Hardwick's name is in the papers as cooperator with the Pinkertons, his life is in danger. He moves his family to St. Paul. The farmer across the creek from the James boys that had been harboring a Pinkerton, he's murdered, most likely by Jesse James. So that threat is real. 
So Jesse apparently wants his revenge on Samuel Hardwick. That's a reason to go to Minnesota. Another reason, of course, is that where's the last place you would expect to find outlaws from Missouri? You know, not Minnesota. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of places uh, that, that you might think they would go. Texas. In fact, a lot of the law enforcement thought they had gone to Texas, and uh, some of the uh, the, uh, the police chief in St. Louis sent some men to Texas thinking that they were down there, and they weren't, and he didn't discover otherwise until the Northfield raid. And was there still lingering resentment by the James brothers towards northern states like Minnesota? Well, maybe, but, you know, that's one of the interesting things. Uh, both Cole and Bob, they said that, you know, we really didn't go to Minnesota with a robbery planned. We went there for pleasure. I mean, they had all this money from Rocky Cut, and so they had to get away. Uh, the heat was on. The hops carry could confess, and they just wanted to go someplace chill, uh, have a good time, and initially they did. I mean, they were up there probably by the middle of August, and they were in the gambling halls in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, the, the whorehouses, and apparently that's exactly what they were doing. And according to uh, to Bob, they started running out of money, and it's like, well, we probably ought to, you know, there's a lot of banks up here. We need to get some money, so what do we know how to do? Do we know how to rob banks? And then they start casing and scouting out banks in the area, and it's small towns. You know, they go to St. Peter, Mankato, uh, Northfield. They, they went to a number of towns scouting uh, for potential uh, banks uh, to be robbed. And they actually take a train to Minneapolis and St. Paul. And after they've had their good time and relaxed a bit, they use their remaining money to outfit themselves. Yes, they're buying horses. Now, they, they, they had all their guns, brought those up, and that's why they were in the famous Duster's it's like the hoodie of the 19th century. <laughs> you could hide all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, they're traveling with their firearms. Uh, but, yeah, they have to buy horses. And, you know, a good horse, $150, $200. And, you know, that's another thing which I think is important to bring out, and I tried to stress this in the book, is that so many movies, most notably the Long Riders, have these guys riding their horses from Missouri to Minnesota, which is an incredibly long ride and time-consuming that didn't happen. I mean, Cole Younger says specifically, we took the train. And, and of course, if they had ridden their horses up there, why would they be buying a bunch of horses? It's, you know, And we have no records of them selling horses. All we have records of is them buying horses, which confirms the fact that they, uh, they took the train. Now, here's something that's not in the book, which I, I came across, oh, about a year or two later. I mean, it seems like the research never ends with these stories, but... I came across an, uh, an interview that was previously unknown that the Younger Brothers gave in prison, and they gave very few interviews or stories. They would, inter- they would be interviewed, but they didn't like to talk about the Northfield raid. And only Cole Younger, he was kind of like the family spokesman in prison, and he would talk about it. But in this very early, the first known interview, detailed interview about the Northfield raid, Cole Younger says that actually Jim Younger, and, and the story had always been that you know he had been called from California, but Cole Younger says that they met Jim at the depot in Council Bluffs on the way to Minnesota by accident, that it was not planned, that was just it was just chance that they encountered him and talked him into joining the raid, or I should say the trip. They hadn't planned the raid yet. Now, Jim Younger was also interviewed, and he told the same story to the same reporter, and he said it was the worst decision I'd made in my life was to, to go with those guys to Minnesota. So I find that very interesting. I don't. I can't say that it's true because those guys. I mean, again, they could very easily craft their own narrative uh, to favor them. But I thought the fact 
that both Jim and Cole told the same story to the same reporter, it's intriguing. I mean, it, it, and there's no reason you can't really say it didn't happen that way because it's very possible that you know. And Jim was apparently on his way back from California to Missouri for other reasons, but come, you know, he says, I, you know, we came across these guys. Cole says they were. He, Jim was walking through the the car, and like Cole kicks him, you know, as he walks by, and uh, and I'm surprised, you know, we're here, we are, and fancy meeting you. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Rivas Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Rivas Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. One, one thing that struck me as I was reading your book, they really drew attention with their outfits, didn't they? Their long matching dusters and their swagger <laughs> really made them stick out wherever they went. 
They did, yeah. Um, and they talked different. <laughs> they, you know, they were from Missouri and, and had peculiar words for things. And uh, apparently, the the social norms or etiquette they didn't follow at all. I guess. And in fact, some of the hotels they stayed at, uh, the people that weren't there, they noticed and and thought, you know, this is these guys are they're different, they're strange. And I think that what I think that's so funny or interesting because guys that are supposedly quote hiding out. Uh, for somebody hiding out, they sure drew a lot of attention to themselves. I mean, like I say, in their mannerisms, the way they acted, the way they were throwing money around and different things. I mean, they were having a high old time uh, in Minnesota. But I guess they were so confident that they wouldn't be recognized and nobody would know who they were. And, you know, these guys always had a great story about who they were when people asked. It's, oh, well, we're, we're a bunch of guys off to the, the Black Hills uh, to do some mining um, and or we're stockmen, cattlemen, or land buyers. I mean, and it just seemed, I guess, to the people at the time, okay, that, that makes sense now, and and uh, and they just dismissed it. Then it's okay. Well, now we, you know, certainly they did draw attention to themselves, but once they gave their story, it's like they didn't think anything more about it. So after some internal gang debates, including discussing the casing of a bank in Mankato, Minnesota, they finally decide on the first national bank in Northfield, Minnesota. Why did they pick this bank, and why did they pick Northfield? Well, let me back up just to Mankato for a bit. Apparently, they did decide initially on Mankato. So they were beginning the robbery and of one of their three banks in Mankato, by the way. And they're beginning the robbery, and there's a bunch of people standing around outside the bank. And these people turn around and start kind of like gesturing towards, you know, the, the, the men that are riding uh, in the robbers, and it scares them off. So they back off, and apparently they, they, they try a second time, you know, and again, these the crowd is, is gesturing towards these, these men on horseback, and they think that something's up. And one of the reasons why they think that is earlier in the day, a man in Mankato did recognize Jesse James. He claimed to be from Clay County, said he had played cards across the table from Jesse, and he actually went into one of the banks and said, I just saw Jesse James. You better watch out. And the guys, of course, thought he was crazy. You know, what would Jesse James be doing up here? And, you know, they forgot about this loon that came in with this wild story. So uh, they're scared off by this large crowd of people on the streets when they want to commit this robbery. As it turns out later, and this is this is so, uh, I mean, it's almost comical, but it fits in so well with what was going on to them in Minnesota. You know, these guys, if anything, they knew good horse flesh. They weren't just buying nags in Minnesota. They bought the best horses that money could buy. And so not only did dusters draw attention, their height, their swagger, their good looks, um, but the horses. And so the people in Mankato were pointing, look at those good horses <laughs> that these guys are riding. And at that time in Minnesota, and I, I discussed this in the book as well, it was odd to see horsemen, a, a man on a horseback. People that, that traveled in Minnesota, you were in a buggy, a farm wagon, you weren't a single guy on a horse, especially a really nice horse. So that's what got it, that's what scared them away. People were pointing at the horse. And also apparently there was some kind of director's meeting or some kind of meeting at the bank that drew all these people, but they were just looking at the nice horses and had no suspicion whatsoever that they were looking at the James Younger game. So to get back to your question, so they're scared off of Mankato. They gotta rethink this. Uh, other towns they go to, for, for whatever reason, the bank, you know, it's too small a town, blah, blah, blah. 
Northfield, what's appealing, several things are appealing about that. One is is that there's only one bank. So unlike Mankato, where they say, well, the money's divided between three banks in Mankato, if Northfield only has one bank, then all the money is in that bank. The other thing that was appealing, and these guys really did their research and they cased things. In fact, they found these news clippings on dead gang members uh, in Northfield on Kel Miller's body. There was a description of the newly installed time lock and bank vault at the First National Bank in Northfield. Well, if a bank is spending big money on a new vault and a time lock, they must have something in there worth protecting. The third reason for Northfield, and this again they learned, one of the investors in the bank was a man named Adelbert Ames. Adelbert Ames had been a Union general in the Civil War. Uh, he was governor of Mississippi. You know, it was the, it was the uh, uh, this is during uh, Reconstruction. And uh, he was definitely a radical Republican. And, of course, you know, Jesse, being the strong Southern partisan and still, you know, kind of fighting the war in his mind anyway, you know, oh, well, this makes it perfect. You know, not only do they have lots of money, but we got this radical Republican's money is in there as well, and that's going to make great headlines. You know, Jesse loved being in the papers. So it was it was no question then, okay, it's got to be Northfield. So that's why they decide to go to Northfield, Minnesota, and rob the bank on September 7th, 1876. So where was the bank in town? Uh, what did it look like, and who worked there? Well, you know, it was a very unimposing structure. It's actually it's on Division Street. It's about a block off the town square, which is known as Mill Square. And it's known as Mill Square because right on one side of the square is the Ames Mill. Again, this is the family of uh, mills invested in by uh, their father as well as Elder Delbert's brother and Delbert. That's why he goes to Northfield because the family has this mill. Anyway, so it's it's a, like a two-story building, but the bank is only on the first floor. It's a very narrow room that goes all the way back to the back of the building. It's got the vault. It's got a, a kind of a uh, an L-shaped counter, a tall bank counter, and there's glass on both sides of the counter. There's an opening in the middle at the at the, at the tip of the L, I guess, where, where the elbow is. There's an opening there where the teller would greet customers, that kind of thing. But it didn't look anything like, you know, some of the movies – they got this beautiful bank building, <laughs> you know, lobby. No, it was very simple, and you wouldn't have thought there'd be much money uh, at all. But I guess not unlike lots of banks in the 19th century and 1870s. Um, so again, you know, unimposing, right on Division Street, which is the main street, kind of a north-south street uh, in Northfield, and just a block off of Mill Square. And of course, the mill is there because of the Cannon River, which flows right through the town. So there, there's a man named Joseph Lee Haywood who works at the bank, and he becomes a pivotal character in this story. Can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, There's just a few employees in the bank. So Joseph Lee Haywood is actually the treasurer, and he's also the treasurer at Carleton College. He has several positions, treasurer at Carleton, Collins, at Carleton College. He's the treasurer at the bank. You also have uh, an assistant to the, the treasurer, and that's uh, Frank Wilcox, and the actual teller, his name is Alonzo Bunker. So there's only three men in there taking care of business. What is an odd uh, occurrence or coincidence or irony, Haywood wasn't supposed to be the cashier at the bank, but because the actual cashier was gone, uh, the cashier had taken his wife to Philadelphia for the big Centennial Exposition. So that makes Haywood 
the acting cashier, and he's going to be sitting at the acting cashier's desk. And Haywood is to take his family. As soon as the cashier gets back from Philadelphia, then Haywood's going to take his family. That's the plan, you know, to, to see the Centennial Exposition. So Haywood, and we're going to talk about why this is such a serious thing, Haywood, you know, really shouldn't have been in charge that day. But because the cashier's gone, then Haywood has that role. So what was the gang's plan that morning? What were they going to do, and how were they hoping it would turn out? So the plan was there are going to be two men that are going to ride. Uh, and the, the, See, you can't have all eight guys together because that draws too much attention. So they go into town in parties of two or three, and then when they approach the bank, it's the same way. So you're going to have two to three men uh, that are going to be riding up and tying their horses in front of the bank. And those men that go into the bank, there's three of them, that's decided on it's going to be Frank James, it's going to be Bob Younger and Charlie Pitts. Those are the guys that are going to go in the bank. Following them, two men, Clell Miller and Cole Younger. And their job, basically, they're just going to be out on the street. Um, you know, Cole Younger is going to get off his horse like he's tightening the cinch. I mean, they're just there in case something goes wrong, then they're back up. And then coming behind them is going to be Jesse James, Jim Younger, Bill Chadwell, and they're going to hang out in Mill Square. And again, they're just there. They're not going any farther. They're they're just hanging out there in case something goes wrong, and they're they can be very close and quick. I mean, they're also protecting an escape route. The idea is is they're going to go back across the bridge of the Cannon River, which is right next to the Ames Mill, and that's going to be their escape route out of town and takes them right into the big woods, uh, which no longer exist today. Uh, so that's that's kind of the setup that that they have decided upon to begin the robbery. It starts about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So as Frank James, Bob Younger, and Charlie Pitts are inside the bank, the people outside start to get suspicious of the gang members guarding the street, and things quickly begin to go wrong. Yes, you know, because, again, they're noticing these men on horseback, uh, and even though they're not together initially, they see these guys. It's not a big town, so they're seeing them in different places in town. The dusters that they're wearing, and the newspapers consistently describe these as fine linen dusters, and I've seen the only surviving duster that was picked up in the bank. It's at the Minnesota Historical Society, and it indeed is a very fine weave. It's a very nice, supple material. But one of the townspeople said it. they almost looked like they were wearing uniforms because they all had identical dusters. So when you get three or four together, and they're all wearing the same kind of duster. They're all on horseback. It does draw attention. And, and in fact, one man did go to uh, the man who had been, I don't know if he was the former constable or had been a constable, and he said, you know, these guys, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm a little suspicious of what they're intending. He said, oh, no, no, these guys are stockmen, and, and you know, I already found out all about them, and, and you know, don't worry, <laughs> this kind of thing. Well, it turns out he, he should have been worried because he, cause he, got, he, he swallowed the same story they'd been telling to everybody else. Um, so, yeah, so automatically people are suspicious. And, in fact, some of them start to think that these guys might be going to rob the bank. As one of the hardware store owners, he decides, and his name was Alan, he decides he's going to follow these guys that went around the corner and see what's going on. It just doesn't seem right. And as he approaches the bank, he gets to the bank door. And by this time, uh, the three men are inside, Frank James, Bob Younger, and Charlie Pitts. 
uh, and already, you know, they've, they've begun their assault, give us your money, who's the cashier, all this kind of stuff. Well, Alan, as he's coming down to the building, Clell Miller, who's now standing near the door, and, and Cole Younger says to, to, to Clell, he says, for God's sake, close the door, because this yelling at the people in the bank could be heard out on the street. And he says, close the door. So Clell's standing next to the door, and as J.S. Allen comes up to the door, Clell grabs him, and he says, don't you yell, you know. And he's holding tight, and, and Allen's scared, pulls away, breaks free, and takes off running back for the corner and back to Mill Square. And as he's rounding the corner, he says, grab your guns, boys, they're robbing the bank. So within a matter of seconds, the alarm has been given. Uh, there's a bank robbery. And now Cole pulls his revolver. Clell's got his revolver out already, and they start shooting in the air. They start shooting at buildings. And, and this is kind of a shock and awe thing. They want people to be scared. They want them to be disoriented. They want to scare them back in their buildings. They want them to keep away until their cohorts in the bank have time to rob it. And then once they start firing their guns, then all of a sudden galloping out of Mill Square are Jesse, Bill Chadwell, and Jim Younger, and they're firing their guns into the air, and they go racing around the corner, and they station themselves up and down the street firing again to scare off the citizens. Anybody that steps out of a doorway, anybody that pokes their head out of a window, they get a gunshot you know, near them. So you've got all kinds of bullets you know, flying through the air, black powder smoke, uh, and while this is going on, the townspeople are running to the – there's two hardware stores on Mill Square, and that's where you buy guns in 1876 is the hardware store. There's not really gun stores. There's hardware stores that sell guns and ammunition. And so the employees in the hardware store start setting out guns on the counter, boxes of ammunition, and uh, pretty soon it's going to be a deadly barrage of gunfire coming from that corner of Mill Square at the robbers that are racing back and forth on the street. And there just happens to be a young man on summer vacation from college in Michigan, a man named Henry Wheeler, sitting right across the street from the bank in front of a, a hardware store, I believe. Yes, it was a drugstore, actually, because his father was a druggist. And, uh, yeah, and, and at the very beginning, he's also suspicious. And he sees what happens with J.S. Allen. He sees Club Miller grab him, and he steps up from his chair and he yells, they're robbing, you know, it's a robber, they're robbing the bank. And, of course, Cole Younger turns right around and fires near him to scare him away. And, yes, Henry Wheeler goes racing back into the building. And then he sneaks around uh, to the hotel, which is uh, also facing Mill Square down the street, and because he knows that there's a gun there. It's a Smith carbine, which was used by the cavalry in the Civil War. It takes a paper cartridge, but it's a breech loader, not a muzzle loader. So it's fairly quick to, to load and, and to aim and to fire. And uh, so he sees a buddy that's at the, at the teller's desk and, hey, you still got that carbine? And he grabs it, and he only had a few rounds. And he races upstairs in the hotel, and he, his window has an excellent view of Division Street and the First National Bank and the robbers. So you're going to have him in a very good position to uh, cause mayhem uh, with the outlaws. And then, of course, from that corner on Mill Square, there's men that come from the drugstores, and they've got shotguns, they've got revolvers, but one man uh, also – has a, uh, I think it's a Remington rolling block rifle. And, again, it's a single shot. And he's able to do deadly damage uh, on the robbers and their horses uh, as well. And I think that's the whole key to the Northfield raid. You've got revolvers, handheld revolvers versus long arms. The shotguns weren't necessarily a problem, neither were the pistols. But when you've guys that got shoulder guns, that you can hold it to your shoulder and take a steady aim, and the guys that are firing back are on horses that are jostling and spinning 
and racing back and forth, I mean, there's no contest. The guys with the shoulder arms are going to, you know, outfight the guys with the pistols any day of the week. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's complete chaos outside. And I, I guess that the James Younger gang should get a little credit, at least to this point, because they're really trying hard not to kill anyone. No. No, initially, you know, again, they're trying to scare people away. They, they're trying to buy time for their men in the bank. Um, and things are going disastrously in the bank. You know, Frank James is shouting, you know, who's the cashier? And then he sees the dame plate, the cashier. You're the cashier. Open the safe. Well, Joseph Lee Haywood, I mean, this would never happen today because every employer of people in a credit union or bank, they're going to say, don't risk your life, whatever they want, do whatever they say, give them the money, but don't don't risk your life over the money in the bank. But at this time, in 1876, there's no insurance, there's no federal deposit insurance. The people that have money in there, if that money's gone, they're not going to see it again. It's gone. Uh, Joseph Lee Haywood knows that. He also knows that there's a reputation for that bank to protect. I mean, he doesn't want to uh, succumb to the robbers. But also his position is the treasurer of Carleton College. He also knows that all the money from Carleton College is in the same bank. So he has several reasons to resist the robbers or put up some kind of resistance, and he does. Now, that's not to say that even at the time there were newspapers that criticized Joseph Lee Haywood's actions. They felt like he sacrificed his life needlessly. But that was his decision. He, you know, he was going to try to outsmart. So he says, well, it's on a time lock. Well, everybody knew about the way that time locks work on a bank because a time lock is there. It engages when the bank closes. And so once it engages, nobody can open that safe, not even the bank president or cashier. Once that time lock is engaged, it's unopenable. You can't get to it. The reason they developed a time lock was that a preferred method of robbery was to go kidnap a bank employee in the middle of the night and have him go open the safe for you. Well, once there's a time lock, that doesn't work anymore. But also the robbers know there's not going to be a time lock engaged during business hours. It's only for when the bank is closed. So when Joseph Lee Haywood says it's on a time lock, they know he's lying right away. It's like you can't do business unless you can get into the safe. We know that it's not. So so this infuriates them because they know he's lying to them. And I'll tell you, the James brothers and the Youngers, they got that all the time. Whether that, whether it was a guy with a railroad that was protecting you know, the express safes or somebody in a bank, their first reaction was to lie to him and says, I don't know the combination. I don't have the key. They knew it was a lie. So all this was costing time. So then the vault door is open. The safe is closed. But what the what Frank doesn't know is that they unlocked the safe earlier in the day. It's not engaged. It's not locked. All Frank would have to do is turn the handle on that safe and open it up. Uh, and there's like $15,000 in the safe. But as Frank starts to go into the vault, Joseph Lee Haywood jumps up and tries to slam the door on him. And so there's a tussle between Frank and Joseph Lee Haywood. Frank takes his gun and pistol whips Haywood, almost kills him. I mean, it's bloody. Haywood falls to the floor. You know, at the same time, you know, Haywood, you know, when they're having a scuffle, he's Haywood's yelling, murder, murder, you know, because he he's, thinks the guys are obviously going to murder him. Uh, and then Bunker and Wilcox are just, you know, they're stiff in terror. They're, I mean, they can't comprehend what's going on and that, that this violence is all of a sudden broken out and, and it's going it's going awful. It's going, you know, it's turned into something like a nightmare in seconds. So they're having their troubles in the bank. And all of a sudden, they're taking casualties out on the street. Sal Miller 
is shot by Henry Wheeler, who's up in the, the hotel room, and it's a, it's a fatal shot. Uh, cuts his artery, and he bleeds out within seconds. Uh, Bill Chadwell, who's farther to the south on Division Street, he's taken out by uh, the, the hardware dealer at the corner, um, and he falls off his horse, and he's dead. So now you've got two guys that are dead. Cole Younger's taken several hits. In fact, just about everybody out in the street except Jesse got some kind of a bullet wound, whether it was shotgun pellets or what have you. And more and more townspeople are coming to the rescue. Now, not everybody was able to get a gun. There was a, a traveling salesman who was across the street from the bank, and he found a revolver in the store, but apparently it didn't have any ammunition or didn't work. I can't remember now. But he has this pistol, and he knows he can't hurt anybody with it, but what he does is when a when a robber comes riding by, he jumps out of the doorway, points his revolver, and he shouts, now I've got you. Well, that gets the attention of the robber. He spins around and shoots at him as the salesman ducks back in, and he does that several times. And, again, it's just a distraction. It's just to kind of disrupt them. But it's very brave. It's very heroic uh, what he does. Other townspeople that don't have access to guns, uh, they have access to big rocks. And so all of a sudden there's rocks that are arcing through the air, and hitting these guys or their horses. So they're getting rocks thrown at them, they're getting shotguns shot at them, they're pistols and revolvers and rifles shot at them. I mean, it's, 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 it's real hell out there on Division Street. And they keep, you know, riding up, Cole keeps riding up to the door. We gotta get out of here, they're shooting us to pieces, come on, you know, it's, give it up, come out of the bank. And I think it's an incredible thing, certainly, you know, what the James Younger gang was doing was awful, and it, and it was, threatening, uh, you know, innocent citizens. And at the same time, though, you can't help but admire the audacity and the loyal, loyalty of these men that would, they would die out there waiting on their cohorts. Yeah, I mean, it's just really incredible that, that these guys would do that. So anyway, the other thing that, that, that's happening, you know, they're, they're arguing with Haywood uh, and, and, you know, the bullets flying back and forth up the street. I mean, the seconds are ticking off. And that was another key to successful robberies. I mean, the longer it takes, the more people, the more dangerous. And uh, finally, Bob and Charlie Pitt, well, um, Alonzo Bunker is so scared and so petrified, he just breaks and runs. I mean, it's like, I can't take this anymore. So he runs, there's a back door. And as he goes running out, Charlie Pitt chases after him. And, and, you know, I don't know why Charlie Pitt chased him, because at this time, the Townsville know it's a robbery. But as Charlie Pitts gets to the door, he does fire a shot at Alonzo Bunker, and the bullet goes through his shoulder, but it doesn't do any you know, real damage or hit anything vital. And as Alonzo Bunker, you know, he's racing, he runs down a block, and he crosses the street, and he's met by the wife of uh, the brother of Adelbert Ames, who just happens to be, her name's Nellie, and she just happens to be in her buggy uh, coming up the street, I think it's Fifth Street, and she asks him, what's, what's happening? And he says, they're robbing the bank or whatever, and he just takes off running, he's going to find a doctor. And later, Alonzo Bunker would say that his whole reason for leaving was to alert the town. And again, I think I kind of look at him a little bit like Cole Younger. He's crafting a narrative later to make himself look better. You know, he was terrified. He was running away. He was scared. He had no intention of, of setting off the alarm. He had to get out of that space. And I guess I don't blame him, but he certainly didn't have noble intentions as far as he was going to warn people. He, he was fleeing the danger. Uh, so this leaves... Two people that are employees of the bank. This leaves Frank Wilcox, uh, and it leaves Joseph Lee Haywood. Charlie Pitts and Bob Younger, they hear the calls for 
the guys to come out, and so they do. They finally they they run out the door. Frank James is very hesitant, and he just hates the idea. Uh, he can't stand it that this this guy Joseph Lee Haywood has foiled their plans and has caused them all these problems. So as he crawls over the counter, and by the way, all the robbers had jumped over the counter as opposed to going around the side. They'd all jumped over the counter. As Frank James crawls back over the counter, he leans back over and fires his pistol. And some accounts, in fact, Frank Wilcox, who is the only eyewitness to this shooting uh, other than Frank James, in his one of his first interviews, he said that Frank fired once at close range and missed Joseph Lee Haywood. And then he fired a second time, and the bullet went right into the Haywood's brain and it kills him. He's murdered. And then Frank James runs out the bank, grabs a horse. At the same time, you know, Bob Younger, he was racing for his horse, and Cole Younger's out in the street, and there's men that are, there's stairways that lead down to the front of the building there at the corner, and there's men firing from around the stairway. And so Cole Younger says, get that SOB that's shooting from the stairway. So Bob Younger's they're having kind of a little cat-and-mouse game and ducking heads back and forth. Uh, and Bob Younger, of course, is, 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 uh, gets an awful shot from Henry Wheeler uh, that just shatters his elbow. And, you know, some of the things, the eyewitnesses, again, they were amazed. But this might take a, some guy out when you get your elbow shattered, but he just changes hands with his revolver, and he just starts shooting left-handed and like nothing had ever happened. So there's this duel going on up the stairs, but finally uh, the gang, you know, as, as Frank comes out, they're getting on the horses. One of the horses has been shot. And uh, they start to ride away, but they forgot about Bob. And Bob says, you know, for God's sake, don't leave me, boys. And, and Cole Younger apparently races back in his horse and grabs Bob and pulls him up behind him. And the gang rides out of town, down Division Street, leaving two men dead in the street. Everybody's got wounds except for Jesse. And apparently Frank was hit as he comes out of the bank or is trying to get on his horse or, or what have you. But it's a complete disaster. These guys are bleeding, uh, racing out of town. And plus... They don't get to go out of town the way they wanted to. They wanted to cross the Cannon River, and they wanted to go to the telegraph office on the other side and cut the telegraph lines. Well, now they can't do that. The men at the corner keep that, that avenue has been closed off. So they're going out a different way. Before they can cross the river, they have to go all the way to Dundas downstream. And one of the interesting things is that uh, they did try to telegraph warning to Dundas that there had been a robbery and they were escaping in their direction, but I guess the telegraph operator, there was only one in town, was out to lunch. So he missed the message. And it would be a comedy of errors for the next two weeks as they hunt these guys as they're trying to escape Minnesota. And there was another townsperson murdered, killed by Cole Younger, right? Yeah, there was a, a, a recent Swedish immigrant named Gustafsson. And as the the robbery is progressing and, and all this activity is going, you know, all this gunfire commotion in the street. Of course, again, people are coming out of the woodwork to see what's going on. And Gustafson uh, and several others, and this is the story, and there's a lot of debate about this, but apparently at the, at the other end of the block and around the corner, there was a saloon down below this building, and there were several men in there. And when they start hearing the commotion, the gunfire, they all go racing out to see what it is. And Gustafson apparently jumps, you know, comes up the stairs and runs right towards Division Street. There's Cole Younger, and Cole Younger shouting for people to get back and, and you know stop and firing. But but also by this time, they're actually shooting to kill people too. I mean they're it's, they're firing with intent because they they want to escape with their lives. And and now now everybody's a threat. All these citizens. 
And uh, Gustafson, who they say didn't understand English well or whatever, um, you know, didn't heed the warning, and Cole Younger just shoots him dead uh, in cold blood uh, there on the street. And I'm sorry, he didn't shoot him dead, but uh, he hits him, and it, it, it paralyzes him. I mean, it's a shot to the skull, and, uh, and it knocks him flat. And then later, uh, after the gang has fled, uh, Gustafson gets up, and uh, races to the cannon, washes his wound, but he'll die a few days later. You know, again, it's a it's a mortal wound. I guess there's swelling to the brain, and uh, after a day or two, he's starting to talk gibberish and nonsense, and succumbs to that that head wound. So the interview with Mark was long and thorough, too long for a single episode. So I decided to break it into two. Today was an introduction of the gang, their reason for being in Minnesota, and the raid itself. Next week, we'll focus on the chase and what happens to the rest of the gang members. In the meantime, if you want to read ahead, go grab his book, again called Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and The Wild West's Greatest Escape to prepare for next week's episode. So I'm going to top off this part one episode with a song performed by my guest, Mark Lee Gardner, a song called Cole Younger. It was written in the 1870s or 80s, not long after the fateful and disastrous trip to Northfield. So please enjoy. And this, by the way, has been the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Noted highwayman, Cole Younger is my name My many depredations have robbed my friends of shame The robbery of the Northfield Bank, the crime I can't deny For which I am a prisoner in Stillwater Jail I lie California miner, the truth now I will tell, who had $30,000, his name was Brigham Hell. I robbed him of his money, and I sent him on his way, for which I will be sorry until my dying day. Started out together when Brother Bob did say We will buy some pretty fast horses on which to ride away We will ride and avenge our father's death and strive to win some prize Fight those anti-gorillas until the day we die Started for old Texas, that good old Lone Star State, but on the Nebraska prairies, the James boys we didn't meet. With guns and knives and revolvers, we all sat down to play. Drinking of good liquor, boys, I passed the time away. Lightning Express was the first one we surprised The remembrance of that bloody deed brings tears into my eyes The engineer and fireman were killed, the conductor escaped alive We left their bodies moldering beneath Nebraska skies
Next we started northward, yes, northward we did go to that godforsaken country called Minnesota. My eyes were on the Northfield bank when Brother Bob did say, Cole, if you undertake that job, you're sure to rue the day. Yes, you are. Stationed out our pickets and to the bank did go, and there upon the counter I made my fatal blow, saying, Hand out your money, and that without delay, we are the noted younger man, have not long to stay. I am a noted highwayman, called Younger is my name. My many depredations have brought my friends to shame. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.